Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. We're finishing the sermon from last week. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse number 22. We'll look down through verse number 35 this morning. Last week, we began looking at this text, and it's so important and also so counter what our Christianity has taught that we really needed to slow down and, and look at it over a period of two weeks. And if you missed the sermon last week, I'm just going to give you the cliff notes, or I think they're the sparks notes now, right, for the younger people. I'm going to just give you the, the short version of what we saw last week. So I want to encourage you, please go listen to the message in its entirety if you missed last week. <clears throat> but as we begin, we just want to remind you that we began last week by seeing Jesus is in complete control here. He's, he's got a sovereign calm about him as he is making his way to Jerusalem. It begins in verse 22 by saying, as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. He's in control of where he's going. He is proceeding. He's making his way to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stand in his way. We know this passage down towards the end uh, in verse 31 some of the Pharisees come to Jesus and say to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is undeterred by the Pharisees. He is undeterred by Herod. He will be in Jerusalem at the predetermined time to be put to death by the predetermined hands all at the predetermined time that God had chosen. Jesus is in a state of sovereign calm, completely in charge. But the heart of this message we saw is found in verses 23 down through verse 30. Look in verse number 23. Someone said to him, as he's journeying from village to village, town to town, on his way to Jerusalem, someone interrupts, someone stops, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, many will seek to enter and will not be able. How many will be saved, Jesus. Will it be a large number of people? Or will it be a few? And Jesus addressed this question as we saw last week in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it, Jesus makes it clear that many enter through the wide gate, many travel the easy way, many go into destruction, few go in the small gate, few travel the difficult way, few enter into eternal life. It does not take a math degree to know that many is more than few, and there is a wide, wide gulf between the many and the few. This should cause us to stop and think, Jesus is revealing 
two gates and only two gates, a wide gate and a narrow gate. He is revealing two ways and only two ways, a difficult way and an easy way. He's revealing two destinations and only two destinations, destruction and life. But he only gives us one command, and the command is enter through the narrow gate. Come through the door. Who is the door? Who is the narrow gate? It is Jesus. There are 10,000, maybe 10 million ways to hell. But there's only one way to eternal life. And his name is Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The right question is not how many will be saved. But will I be one of them? Will I be one of them? So verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he sidesteps the wrong question and gives the right answer. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, this is a scary thought. This is a scary thought that many go through the wide gate, many travel the easy way, many go to destruction, few there are that go through the narrow gate, few travel the difficult way, few enter into life, and yet there's many that seek. Few that make it. Many seek to enter and will not be able. So strive, strive, Strive. We don't need to be seekers here this morning. We need to be strivers. And the term strive indicates, again, that entering the door to God's kingdom, entering that narrow gate takes conscious, purposeful, intense effort. The word, the word strive carries with it the idea of contending for a prize. So do you, you want to pursue Christ. You want to pursue the door like you are pursuing a gold medal at the Olympic Games. No, even more so. The word carries with it the idea of contending with an enemy. So you want, to, you want to pursue Jesus Christ. You want to pursue the narrow door, the narrow gate, like your life depends on it. Because your eternal life does. It implies a struggle. So our pursuit of Christ, our striving for Christ, should result in agonizing in our hearts. I want to give you an example of striving to enter the narrow gate. It's a little book. If you haven't read The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, you need to do that. If you just are totally averse to reading, there's a documentary that's not as good, but at least watch that. He put out a devotional book some time back called The Insanity of Sacrifice based on his book, The Insanity of God, and his experience in interviewing persecuted believers around the world. And we read this this past week, and I said, this is striving. This is what it looks like to strive to enter the narrow gate. So I want you to hear what Nick Ripkin writes. He said, one persecuted follower of Jesus in Central Asia agreed to an interview on the condition that we would never see his face nor try to learn anything about his background. So we met in a small room where this man was completely hidden from us. Though we could not see the man, we could hear him clearly. 
For six hours, he told us his story. For years, this man had been the leader of a group of soldiers charged with the task of repelling foreign invaders. By his own admission, he took great joy in killing infidels in the name of Allah. He described these killings in graphic detail. Eventually, this man began having a dream that repeated itself over and over again. In the dream, he saw blood on his hands that he could not wash away. He began to see the blood in his waking hours. And he recognized this as the blood of all those he had killed. Finally, one night his dream changed. A man appeared and said, I am Jesus, the Messiah. I can get the blood off of your hands if you will just find me and follow me. It took the man a year to find a Bible. It took him even longer to understand what he was reading in the book. He traveled within three countries seeking the Jesus of his dream. After years of struggling and searching, the man gave his life to Jesus and began to follow him. He said that at that point, his repeated dream stopped immediately. Led by the Holy Spirit, led by his personal study of the Bible, this man learned how to follow Jesus. And as he explained it, he tried to do everything the Holy Spirit told him to do. He was eventually found out by the soldiers he had led in the past. They beat him mercilessly and accused him of being a traitor. Somehow, miraculously, God saved this believer from death. Even so, the cost for his service to Jesus was immense. Once he became a follower of Jesus, he was hated and hunted. He gave up literally everything to follow Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to strive? It looks like searching for a Bible for a year. Struggling for more than a year to understand that Bible. Being willing to travel to three different countries until you can understand the message of that Bible. And then getting through the narrow gate. That's what it looks like to strive. And I wish we would all, all this morning, right now, just ask ourselves this question. If it took us a year to find a Bible, would we be willing to look that long? If it took us more than a year of reading that Bible, would would we be willing to dig and read that long? If we had to travel to three different countries to get the truth from this Bible, would we be willing to do that? How many of us would be willing to strive that much to find Jesus? I fear, I fear that we don't understand striving Because everything is way too easy. Leonard Ravenhill said this, and I want you to hear this quote. An experience of God that costs nothing, does nothing, and is worth nothing. An experience of God that costs us nothing, does nothing, and is worth nothing. That's why we strive. We contend We fight. 
We agonize. We do what we have to do to get peace with God and to get through the narrow gate. We cry out to Him day and night. We search His Scriptures. We get on our face before Him. We're not asking for fast food religion here. We're not asking to be challenged here. We're asking to be changed. And we don't need to put this off because verse 25 says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. Remember that a door has two purposes. It's not, it's not just to open to let people in, but it's to shut to keep people out. And there will come a time when that door will shut. Do you remember the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins? And once the bridegroom has shut the door, there's no getting in. Don't put off getting right with God. Run to Him today. Verse 26, Jesus warns them, You will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Look at what they say. They say, Jesus, we, we ate in your presence. Jesus, we drank in your presence. Jesus... You taught in our streets. We listened to your sermons. Don't you remember our faces? Don't you remember us, Lord? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know where you're from. Doesn't this echo Matthew 7 yet again? Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you see the parallel between these two passages and how much alike they are and how consistent Jesus' message is. And since they're so much alike, let's just look at Matthew 7 and then go back to Luke to, to try to better understand what Jesus is communicating here. He gives us two warnings in this passage of Scripture in Matthew 7. The first warning has to do with false professions. False professions. In verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? And this is Jesus speaking. This is not me. This is Jesus. And Jesus, who holds the keys to your salvation, says to us this morning, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for someone to address Jesus as Lord was, was to say, Jesus, you are God. 
I receive the truth about who you claim to be. I receive the truth about who you are. And I recognize you as the Lord. But for someone to say, Lord, Lord, it is as though they're saying, I believe who you are, Jesus, and I really believe it, and I devote myself to it. I am sincere when I say you are Lord. So he says, not everyone who says this, who professes Lord, Lord, an orthodox profession of faith, an orthodox, sincere profession of faith, not everyone who says Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They say the right words, they're sincere about those words, and yet not all of them will will enter the kingdom. Why? Because they gave a false profession. I want us to be aware of two things as we think about a false profession. First, just because you have professed the faith doesn't mean you possess the faith. Now, I know that rubs across the grain of all that we've heard in Southern Baptist history for the past 20, 30, 40 years, maybe longer. Because we've been told all you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, pray a little prayer, mean it in your heart of hearts, get baptized, join the church, you're good. Don't let anyone ever cause you to question Whether or not you're a Christian. You have asked Jesus into your heart and the deal has been settled. Which sounds good until you hear what Jesus just said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 100% of the people Jesus is talking about have made a profession of faith. 100% of the people Jesus is talking about have called upon his name, Lord, Lord. Lord, but not all of them will get to heaven. So therefore, if we have everybody in this group saying, Lord, Lord, we profess you as Lord, and Jesus saying, all of you aren't going to make it to heaven, that tells us that our profession of faith alone is not enough. There is 0% guarantee of salvation based on a profession of faith Alone. Do you hear me? There is 0% guarantee of salvation based on a profession of faith alone. So I want you to hear me loud and clear. If you come into this place Sunday after Sunday, and the only thing, the only thing you hang on to for your assurance, the only thing you hang on to for your peace of mind, the only thing you hang on to that gives you hope of eternal life is that one day, You professed faith in Jesus. One day you prayed a prayer. One day you filled out a card and walked down an aisle and got baptized. Jesus is telling you this morning what you are holding on to is not a sufficient guarantee to get you into the kingdom of God. This is not what I'm saying. This is what Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith is saying to us. And we need to listen to him because on the last day we're going to stand before him. And we will not be able to plead ignorance. Jesus makes clear that there is zero guarantee in a profession alone. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? 
to call on the name of the Lord. Even to continually call on the name of the Lord. But refuse to do what Jesus says is the essence of a false profession. The words of an engraving from a cathedral in Germany reflect Jesus' teaching here. Listen to these words. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. Just because you have professed the faith doesn't mean you possess the faith. Now let me flip the coin over here and remind us that just because you have professed the faith doesn't mean you don't possess the faith. Just because you've professed the faith doesn't mean you don't possess the faith. We need to be careful here that we don't go to the opposite extreme. And there are those who go to the opposite extreme and say, we should not make a sincere orthodox profession of faith. Because it alone doesn't guarantee salvation. Now think about this, 100% of the people Jesus is speaking to before him have said, Lord, Lord. And not all of them are going to get into the kingdom of God, but some of them are. Some of them are. So let's be careful that we, won't go, that we don't go to the opposite extreme and say that we should not make a sincere orthodox profession of faith. We see the importance of a profession in Scripture in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The the publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like we read about earlier in the service, didn't we? He cried out to God. When a baby is born, he cries. Sometimes it takes a swat on the behind to get him going. But he cries. And when someone is born again, they cry. They call out. Sometimes they made a little guidance, a little help. But they're Inclination is to cry out. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because you've professed the faith doesn't mean you don't possess the faith. But just because you profess the faith doesn't guarantee you possess the faith either. And some of you, some of you may have professed the faith. You've come to the cross. But you know deep down in your heart, right now this morning... That though you have professed the faith, there has never really been a clear work of the Holy Spirit done in your life. There's been no transformation that's happened in your life. God has not resurrected you from the dead. Spiritually speaking. You don't need to just come to the cross. 
We don't need to just come to the cross, but this is where we miss it. We talk about professions of faith, and we call on the name of the Lord, and we want to come to the cross and look at it and, and, and remember it and sing about it and think about it. But listen, we need to stop coming to the cross and get on the cross. We've got to get on the cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. You want conversion? Stop just coming to the cross and looking at the cross and get on the cross. Don't just come confessing or professing. But come for possessing and indwelling. Come for the Holy Spirit to possess you. Come for Christ to indwell you. That's what a saving profession looks like. It looks like us getting on the cross and being crucified with Christ and the Holy Spirit taking residence up in our lives and Christ indwelling us in power. The problem we see addressed here by Jesus is not professing Him as Lord, but falsely professing Him as Lord. Don't miss that. The problem is not professing Jesus as Lord. The problem is falsely professing Him as Lord and then finding assurance in the false profession. He rolls right out of that into not only false professions, but secondly, false performances. In verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 7, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus goes on to discuss false performances. Not only have they said, but now they're doing. And they seem to be doing quite productively too, don't they? They're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're doing many mighty works. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. How is this possible? Think about this. Someone comes in, naming the name of Jesus. They preach with power. Demons leave. Miracles are done. And they're without Christ. In Luke's gospel, they eat and drink with Jesus. They walk the streets with Jesus. They listen to his sermons. And Jesus said, I never knew you. This is all about doing. You got one about professing, and this one's about performing. Not just look at what I said, hey, but look at what I'm doing. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can begin to rely on our performance. We say, so I got up this week every day, I prayed. I read my Bible, I have my tithe check, I, I, I stayed out of trouble, I came to church this morning, even in the snow, I've got my list, I've checked it twice, I haven't been naughty, I've been pretty nice, so I'm coming to church, and I feel really good about myself, Lord. And we just need to be reminded that we can't impress God, okay? Live as perfectly as you want to live and dress as snazzily as you want to dress and you're not going to impress God. Don't confuse busyness 
with godliness. John MacArthur said, in fact, attending church, this, this sounds so backwards, but he said, attending church, hearing sermons, singing solos, reading the Bible, attending Bible studies, and many other perfectly good activities can actually insulate a person from the very God he's supposedly worshiping and serving. And what he's saying is, our busyness can cloud our need for God and the absence of God in our life. And now we can add to that the busyness of everyday life and the constant distractions. I'm really struggling. And this is off the record here. This is free of charge. But I'm really just struggling here in my mind as I look around. And it is 24-7 television Earbuds in, staring at social media, watching YouTube videos. It is 24-7. It is as if Satan just has given us a beautiful, a beautiful kaleidoscope and strapped it to our, our face to blind us from our desperate, desperate, desperate need of God to give us an uppercut. And I don't know what to do about it except start busting phones with hammers and then I go into jail. I have a jail ministry. (laughs) But listen, we chuckle at it. But listen, guys, you'll walk out of here and before the sermon's even processed, you'll pull up Facebook. Before we even get out of here today, you'll pull up a screen. And a lot of us are going to go to hell with a screen in our hand and with a smile on our face, laughing at a little jiff. And it should burden us. And it's not just the teenagers either. I think the adults are worse sometimes. But the church, our good works can insulate us Let's forget about all the other distractions. Our good works can insulate us. And sometimes lost people who are neck deep in religion and service to the church are harder to the gospel than people who are out on the streets. Their goodness has insulated them from the Spirit's call. Now there was a a Puritan pastor by the name of Richard Baxter who came, and you're going to hear about him at the church church retreat, but he came to a little town called Kidderminster. When he arrived in Kidderminster, England, he said that there was scarcely one family on a street that worshipped God. After he had been there for some time and his ministry was coming to a close, he wrote about the town of Kidderminster and said there is scarcely a family on a street that doesn't worship God. So he said, we're talking about a sweeping awakening. He arrives and there is scarcely one family on the street on each street that worships God, he leaves after his ministry there, and there is scarcely a family on each street that doesn't worship God. It's been a total transformation. And this is what he attributed it to. He said, if they had been hardened under a powerful ministry and been sermon-proof, I should have expected less. In other words, if they had learned to hear, hear hard, biblical, prophetic preaching, and then twist their mind to tune it out. Let it roll off of them like water off a duck's back. He wouldn't have had the ministry he had. 
Do you see how spiritual things, good things, disciplines can sometimes harden us to the gospel if we don't really know Christ? We need to be careful here that we don't just try to ramp up our performance and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps before we agonize and get through the narrow gate. Or it'll just harden us to the truth. So the false professions is one danger. The false performances is another danger. And here's the clincher. Don't miss this. Hear me if you've been asleep. This is the clincher. It's not what you're doing or what you're not doing, but are you moving from sin to holiness? You say, I'm not giving you a list. You don't need to write a list. You don't need to make a list necessarily. You need to ask yourself, am I moving from sin to holiness? What trajectory am I on in my life? What direction is my trajectory taking me? Is it taking me ever so slowly to holiness? Praise God, you're moving in the right direction. That's the clincher. Which direction are you moving? And here's here's something else you can ask yourself. As you are forced... As you confront the world, the flesh, are you rejecting it tearfully? Or are you rejecting it cheerfully? Now don't miss this. When you're confronted with the world and the flesh and sin, are you rejecting it tearfully like so many Good Baptist, you're like, well, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't hang around with people who do, but man, I'd sure love one. So I'm just miserable. Because, you know, I got to reject all that because I'm a Christian now, you know. Are you rejecting it tearfully? Or are you rejecting it cheerfully? I don't want the things of the world anymore, I don't want the things of the flesh anymore. I don't want these things anymore. My my life has been transformed. My desires have been changing. If you're sitting here this morning and all of this sounds like drudgery to you, all of this sounds painful to you, all of this sounds miserable to you, then you need to be born again. There's no other way to put it. You may be the religious pedophilias in Tullahoma. But if you tearfully reject sin rather than cheerfully hate sin, you need to be saved this morning. There's your clincher. You enjoy the things of the devil, you belong to the devil. You despise the things of the devil, you belong to God. He's done a work in your life. These people come and they performed well. We've done what we're supposed to do, Jesus. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we worked miracles, we ate with you, we drank with you, we listened to your sermons, we walked the streets with you. Now let us in. And there's not a true believer on planet earth who's going to walk up to the kingdom of God on the final day and say, listen, Lord, I prophesied in your name, let me in. Listen, Lord, I cast out demons, let me in. Listen, Lord, I've been a good person, let me in. Listen, Lord, I ate and drank with you and walked with you and listened to your sermons and I did great things for you, let me in. No, a true believer is going to go up to the final judgment seat and they're going to throw themselves on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ just like they've done day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, and year in and year out of their entire life as a believer because our only hope is Christ. 
So if your first thought goes to, well, I did this, and I did that, and I prayed this, and I prayed that, you're going to get to heaven and hear, wrong answer. It can only be Christ did what you required me to do in my place, God. Christ paid the price for my sin in my place, God. Christ came to dwell within me, God, and He changed my wretched, wicked desires and gave me holy desires, God. It's nothing about me. It's all about Him. That's the right answer. Luke 13, 26, you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, you talked in our streets. And He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. Where do they depart to? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, hell is a place of consuming fire, is it not? Hell is a place of eternal judgment. But Jesus tells us why they weep and gnash their teeth here. It's not fires of hell. He says, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Now, here are these people who say, Abraham is my father. We are descendants of Isaac. We are descendants of Jacob. We know the prophets, Jesus. They're going to weep and gnash their teeth when they see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in eternity and them being cast out. They miss it. The religious people miss it. But there will be people from every nation. There will be people from every tongue and every tribe made willing Verse 29, he says, they will come from east and west and from north and south and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some are first who will be last. We have the promise for us Gentiles here this morning. We have the promise that from all nations People will be part of the kingdom of God. Remember earlier in Luke chapter 13, he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which a man threw into his own garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Those birds represent the kingdom. People coming from all over the world to the kingdom. All different types of birds in the kingdom making their home in the branches of the kingdom. Revelation 7 tells us that there will be people from every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping Jesus around the throne. Don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to be a part of this heavenly chorus worshiping Jesus? Don't you want to be a part of getting people from the least reached groups on earth to that throne to worship Jesus? Don't you want to be a part of Don't you want to be there? Are you striving to be there? Don't let verse 34 be true of you. Verse 34 says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Will you have it this morning? Will you have it this morning? Will you just admit that you've been deceived? If you have, will you just admit that you've been banking on a false profession if you have? Will you just admit that you've been betting on your false performances if you have? Would you just admit it and admit your need of Jesus Christ and come to Christ this morning? Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteousness. Turn from your iniquity. Turn from your religiosity. Turn from whatever it is that keeps you from coming to Jesus empty-handed and getting on the cross. Turn from whatever it is that keeps the Holy Spirit from filling you and Christ from indwelling you. Repent and believe what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? Our only confidence is that our soul belongs to Him. Would you bow with me? If God has shown you this morning that you do not truly know Him, right now, where you are, call upon His name Cry out to Him. Appeal to Him. Come to Him in repentance. Come to Him in faith. Listen, some of you have been believers a long time. You need to come to Him this morning in repentance and in faith. Because He's our only hope. You just need to repent and trust Jesus afresh. But if you have been playing games, if you, if you have been pretending, if you've just been putting it off, hoping that things will get better, but you know that the power of God and the presence of God is not real in your life, I pray that you now, where you are, would repent of your sin, that you would put your faith and your trust in Him, that you would call upon His name, that you would confess Him as your Lord, that you would believe deep down in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you would agonize. Wrestle with God until you prevail. Wrestle with God until you prevail. It will be worth it. Search the Scriptures for a year. Travel to three countries. Seek out counsel. Do what you've got to do to get peace with God. Because you can't do anything for God until you have peace with God. You can't accomplish anything for God without peace with God and the presence of God in your life. So, please, please strive. Don't rely on your false profession. Don't rely on your false performances, but strive to get through the narrow gate who is Jesus Christ this morning. Father, we thank you.
for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your gospel message that Jesus Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough. Help us to turn loose of everything that stands between us and Christ. Awaken us, revive us, help us, God. Grant repentance, grant faith in this place. Transform us. May we not be challenged by what we've heard, but may we be changed by what your Holy Spirit does in our lives. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.